You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Katie Burke. On the show today, we have a special guest, Corey Rogers, the chief curator at the Shelburne Museum in Shelburne, Vermont. Welcome to the show, Corey. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be with you. Yeah, I am too. It's um, You're my first like other museum person, so that's <laughs> well, I'm exciting. very honored. That's exciting. Um, <laughs> hopefully we don't bore people too much with our... Oh, I'll be salacious. <laughs> so anyway, so I was looking up because I didn't know much about your background and it was kind of not easy to find, but you went to... Are you from Oklahoma or did you just go to like undergrad in Oklahoma. Yeah, I was born in Shamrock, Texas, about seven miles from the western Oklahoma border. And I was born, I mean, raised in western Oklahoma and went to the University of Oklahoma for my undergrad. Um, I know exactly where Shamrock, Texas is, actually. I used to go turkey hunting there as a kid with my dad. Such a small world. <laughs> yeah, so I know exactly <laughs> where that is. Um, that's crazy. Um, okay, so then, yeah, you got your BA in art history. And then how did you get to Parsons? Uh, I, I got my master's degree there and it was a weird program where it was split between New York and um, D.C. And I did the D.C. program where I specialized in Americana. So folk art, uh, decorative arts, glass, ceramics, furniture and all that jazz. Okay, And then you basically went straight from there to the Shelburne or was there like a little gap between? No, I had graduated and I was looking for an internship and a a mentor of mine worked at Shelburne Museum and she invited me up and I've been here for almost 20 years now. Well, lucky you. That is not the typical museum story. (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) So you didn't have 15 unpaid internships to get there. Um, (laughs) I know you did Americana and folk art, so that kind of tells me a little bit about how the decoys came. But did you ever imagine that as chief curator you would have, or in whenever you imagined yourself as being a future curator, that you would be, you know, the steward of decoys, of such a decoy collection that y'all have there? Uh, Never, never in a million years. I've never hunted. I've only been hunting once with my father and I couldn't be quiet enough. I was scaring away all the game. So he sent me back to the truck and I read. So that was my only experience ever hunting. So this is something that's a little bit out of my um, life experience. (laughs) Yeah. So you have, so y'all, how many do y'all have? I know you have the Joel Barber collection, but have you collected on top of that? So what is your actual like standing collection of decoys now? Uh, it depends on how you define a decoy. If we're looking at like dismembered heads or bodies without heads, we have approximately about 1,200. Um, three to four, 350 of those came from Joel Barber's collection, which was actually the seed that sort of grew into what we have today. So... I kind of want to talk a good bit about Joel Barber because, sure. um, you know, he's our father of decoy collectors. First, I don't know the answer to this before we get into him his question. Why did he give it to the Shelburne Museum? What was his connection there? Um, he didn't give it to the Shelburne Museum. He passed away in 1952 and his son was looking for a place for his collection and he 
was introduced to um, the founder, Electra Havermeyer Webb, Shelburne Museum's founder, her children through the artist Ogden Pleisner. And so they arranged the sale of the collection then. Okay, because, yeah, I was like, how did he get to Vermont? <laughs> That's what I was confused. <laughs> so let's talk about Joel Barber and his influence on decoy collecting. Because, and, and you can kind of tell, I know a little bit about the story, but I don't, our audience probably does not, our audience is not primarily decoy collectors. So why is he considered the father of decoy collecting and um, and why? how did he get started? Sure. Joe Barber is sort of considered the father of decoy collecting because um, over the years of his own personal collecting, he d- developed enough material to write a book called Wildfowl Decoys in 1934. And that was really the first book um, ever to be published specifically about decoys. And Joel Barber was sort of like the most unlike, from my perspective, the most unlikely character to become the father of decoy collecting. Um, Although he descended, he said, from a long line of um, professional hunters, he himself didn't hunt. And he was a, um, a modernist architect um, who lived in New York City. And he, uh, in 1918, he was living on Long Island and he was rummaging around in a, um, a sailing loft that was right there on the property. And he discovered this whole cache of like completely discarded decoys. And all of a sudden, you know, it sort of clicked with him that these were really beautiful works of art. And so he picked up one merganser and he took that merganser hen home. And over the course of a couple of weeks, you know, that merganser started out as a doorstop. Then it sort of landed on his desktop and then it finally found its place on the mantelpiece. And that was when it occurred to him that, you know, this is something I need to be um, looking into and collecting. Yeah, I wonder, you know, with his background as an architect, if that had, I mean, I I can't imagine it didn't have an influence on how he saw them because they do have such form to them, especially you say a merganser. I think of all the mergansers have very unique form. Um, it had to have had some sort of impact on why he was drawn to it, don't you think? Yeah, he was working for one of the most famous um, sort of art deco um, architects at the time, Raymond Hood. And I think especially in the decoy that he did collect, it was this beautiful, simple um, design with this lovely swooping curve of the crest of the female merganser that I think that appealed to him because it reminded him of sort of the, the the aesthetic that he was working in with Art Deco. So how did he then proceed as a collector? I know he collected all over, but was did he eventually, um, how did he start in that collecting? Did he just go look for whatever he wanted? Like he just, for anywhere he could find decoys or how did it like, you know, then proceed? Sure. Um, I think he was sort of an opportunistic collector. I think when he was on Long Island, there were a lot of decoys that could be found um, in people's homes and antique stores and along, just along the shoreline, these old um, sort of abandoned decoys. So he was a voracious collector and he would, then he started branching out into the community And um, around 1923 and in 1923, when they had the first decoy exhibition um, in Bellport, Long Island, Joel Barber was involved in that. And that's where I think he started to develop this sort of network of friends who were supplying him with decoys. Um, uh, They were giving him decoys from their own collections on loan to draw and um, illustrate in his own book, uh, Wildfowl Decoys. And he had a hard time turning over those decoys when he was done drawing them. Yeah, and he had relationships with carvers at the same time, right? Because you talk about that exposition 
didn't was it Shang Wheeler that had a lot of decoys there? Yeah, that's where he was introduced to Shang Wheeler. He was the the first winner of um, that competition, and it was with a beautiful pair of um, mallard decoys. And later on in life, um, Shang Wheeler gifted that winning um, mallard Drake and hen to Joel Barber as a Christmas present. So it's nice that we have those in the collection. You know, from that book, though, there's 30 years until the next book. Why do you think there's, why is it so, such a long period before there's another book? You know, I'm not really sure. I think that there were other collectors who were working at the time who were amassing these really great collections, people like Bill Mackey, Adele Ernst, and um, some others, Dr. Starr was also collecting George Starr. Um, and I think it just took them a long, a, a longer period of time to sort of amass the number of decoys that they, and the quality of decoys that they wanted to publish. So I think that was sort of it. Joel really laid the groundwork by focusing on the history of decoys and their use. He didn't really get into the fact that, you know, these were works of art or um, pieces of folk art, whatever you want to call them. Right. He was really trying to set up sort of the pedigree for um or the basis of information for decoys. And he does that in a fairly interesting way. Um, as you can imagine, since it was published, there has been new information um, that has come about. There have been reattributions. So for any collector who's looking to start collecting decoys, they should start with Joel Barber's book, but they also should be aware that some of the information has changed over time. Yeah, I mean, it was written in 1934 and yeah. technology has kind of <laughs> changed things. But... And he was really the first to write about it. So, and that book is, you know, it's special in its own sense. Like the way he tells the story, he tells it in such like a story, the way he's written it. It's not like just like, you know, you see a book, one of the decoy books today and it's, this was the carver, here's the information on the carver. And then it goes into talking about, you know, the structure of a decoy. And it's just, you know, so specific. Whereas this really, his book really tells a story, um, which is, you know, special in its own right. So it's definitely worth reading. Yeah. And one of the things that I love about it most is the fact that he decided that he wanted to illustrate the book himself, both with photography of birds in his collection and then some that were on loan. But he also, as an architect, he was a professional draftsman. And so he did these really beautiful measured drawings of the decoys in his collection. And then he created what he called watercolor or wash um, portraits of these decoys. And so you can find those interleaved throughout the book. And to me, we the museum, Shelburne Museum, owns those um, paintings and they're really, really spectacular to see them in person. Yeah, those are too. And even just like the little, like there's the drawing he does. I think it's of like the Native American, like the different styles of decoys they use in there. I Like that's one of my favorites. Like just he illustrates the timeline. It's almost yeah. like, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's fantastic. And um I think there's another one where he like talks about like the Newfoundland, like how they hunt the eider up there. Mm-hmm. And he like, he really, I mean, you can tell he's an architect because he, it's very detailed. He's like, let's look at the top angle, the side angle. <laughs> yeah, he was totally obsessed with decoys. And he, you know, he even designed lamps out of decoys. He designed a chair that was made to look like a goose. He was just this man who was just totally obsessed and it it invaded every aspect of his life. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. 
Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. So when does him and Mackie meet? I know they like, they're part of the exposition together. When do they have like develop a relationship? You know, I'm not really sure the exact date, but I do know that there was a friendship between them and they shared decoys. And especially in the later in life when they were working on the um, duck competitions, they both judged together. And I think that Barbara sort of saw Mackie as like the next torchbearer because Barbara was at the end of his life in the 1940s, late 1940s and 50s when we have a lot of photographs of them together. And I think Barbara was happy to sort of hand over that torch to, to Bill Mackey. And, you know, he ran with it and was, you know, a very popular and respected um, decoy authority until he passed away in the early 70s. Right. Yeah. And that's kind of what it you kind of get from that. This little bits we get is that kind of relationship as well, especially with him writing the next book. And, you know, then you get Adele who like kind of finally forms it as art. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not unusual, like, there are, I'll just say this to our audience, like, it's not unusual that um, he wouldn't have been a hunter. Like, that's that's still very common today that we have lots of collectors that are more focused on the art side of decoy collecting. Yeah. He always said that he was a hunter of decoys. <laughs> As the being that you've been there for 17 years now, is that right? Yeah, I'm going on my 18th year. Yeah, that's crazy. I can't believe you've been at one place the whole time. Um, I get comfortable at, really easily. Uh, well, it's a nice place to get comfortable. Um, so as it being your 17th year, you being there, the steward of these decoys for 17 years, do you have a favorite? I'm not one of those parents who claims that they don't have favorite children when they actually do. Uh, I think I would, if I'm being honest with you, my favorite decoy of all time is this really extraordinary Canada goose that was carved by Captain Charles Osgood, the famous Osgood geese. We have five of them in the collection, three sentinels, one preener, and one feeding. And, you know, these were made in about 1849. And the story goes that Captain Charles um, Osgood was, on his ship out in the bay of San Francisco and he was waiting for a cargo to be loaded onto a ship and for some reason it took a really long time so a couple of months and during his wait he decided he was going to carve some decoys um, for his use back in on the east coast and so he made these really extraordinary um, group of seven that we know of uh, geese and we have we own five and the one that has the um preening decoy where the neck is craned backwards it's just the most beautiful work of sculpture in my in my opinion and so that was my favorite those are pretty uh, yeah i know which ones you're talking about they just the slope of the neck and it's yeah it's beautiful um so i know you have a big exhibit that just came out and i'm gonna let you talk about it mm-hmm. um hopefully i won't make anyone too mad but that's your job so yeah, yeah. Um, it's been pretty controversial yeah. yeah so how has that been since it came out I, I watched your um your webinar that came out and how's it going with all that and we're talking about the, the audience he came out with a the bowman and sumner bun um reattribution of decoys. So for those of people who aren't familiar with this controversy, um, for the last, uh, since 2003, um, there's been a big debate in the decoy community about whether or not a group of um, really beautifully carved and accomplished decoys, uh, shorebird decoys, were um, 
made by a man named William Bowman or were they made by another man named Charles Sumner Bunn? And it's sort of been the third rail, like no one has really wanted to touch it because it's been so controversial. And so the whole story begins when I was working on my um, decoy Instagram and I posted a picture of these Bowman Bunn decoys and I sort of flippantly said, you know, no matter where which side you're on, you can't deny that these are really beautiful decoys. And so Joe Jansen, one of the um, Charles Sumner Bunn proponents, um, sent me a direct message and said, listen, if you're willing to listen to me, I would like to give you a presentation to talk about my research. And so that sort of sparked this um, conversation. It was really great. And I worked with him and Jamie Reason, and they were really... um, really generous in sharing their research with me. And so it started a more than a year and a half um, research project where I really tried to find out how do these decoys, who who made these decoys, right? And the story goes uh, that there was a man named William Bowman, who was a cabinet maker who lived in Maine, but made this yearly pilgrimage to Long Island to hunt and carve decoys. He lived under in squalid, um, uh, squalor uh, underneath a tarp, on a beach in a marsh, and he carved these really beautiful decoys, and he was sort of a functioning alcoholic. And so he would go into town. He would only carve decoys when he needed to go into town to sort of buy, um, to earn enough money to buy some more alcohol. And so, you know, that's one story. And then there's the story of Charles Sumner Bunn, who is a well-documented hunter, trapper. Uh, he's a bayman, too. He um, is known to have carved decoys. He was a, He's a member of the Shinnecock and Montauk um, Indian tribes on Long Island. And there's some photographs that were discovered. And these photographs sort of link him, they do link them, excuse me, in my opinion, to the the duck decoys that have been attributed to this man, William Bowman. And so I went on this journey and using their research, my own research, we even did pain analysis of the decoys to see if that would help us date the birds, which would might preclude one carver from the other. That turned out not to be conclusive. Um, but we, in weighing all of the evidence, I had to say there's not a lot of evidence to prove to me that Bill Bowman, A, really existed, and B, all of the evidence, like the fact that, you know, some of these birds are branded with people who were known personal friends as well as clients of Charles Sumner Bunn. And so that sort of, you know, it's a very controversial thing. And when people disagree with me, I respect that. And I tell them just because I say something does not mean that you have to believe it. It's just, this is my opinion based on the evidence that I've read. And so far, I've had a pretty good um, response. A lot of people that I were who are well-respected in the field, who um, I was a little concerned about their opinions, have said, you know what, this is pretty convincing information. So if we change people's minds, that's great. If not, you know, I understand and I respect your opinion. Yeah, you know, it might be a slow change. You can't, you know, sometimes things like that, like people don't want to change immediately, but, you know, they might want to sit with it for a while. Sure. (laughs) And it might be a slower change. Yeah. And, you know, I was really careful about speaking with people on both sides of the issue. I wanted to hear everyone's perspective. And I tried to be as respectful to both sides because I'm trying to remain as objective as I possibly can. And so I've talked to some very um, interesting and um, well-respected people and, 
we have diverging opinions, but I still respect them. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's your job as a curator. You know, your job is to hear both sides and kind of be non-objective until you come to what you what you assess to be the conclusion. I mean, that's that's what we do. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and maybe maybe not, you know, the maybe the collector doesn't necessarily understand, you know, that position as, you know, a lay person who's just collecting for the love of it, whereas you're representing an institution, um, and your and your job is to educate. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's just yeah. Now we're getting into the museum <laughs> part of things, but yeah, I mean, that's just our job, and and it's hard sometimes, you know, as 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 someone in a museum field, because you you do have to. It's hard to make a choice. Yeah, because you do have to like think of both sides and be open to other things and it's not always easy to make a stand so good for you thank you <laughs> so um well let's talk about your redoing of um when did y'all renovate the 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 space where it's the decoys are now yeah it was it, we opened the building in 2017 but the process had been going on for years we closed the building because it wasn't in great condition um and the lighting was terrible and the climate control was not great. And so we wanted to protect this, what we consider to be one of our treasure collections. And so we had an NEH um, grant and it uh, helped us pay for um, providing better climate control um, and upgrades to the way we exhibit the birds. We now use LED lighting, which is better for the decoys. Um, we cut down on all the UV light. Uh, and so it was a long process. And I worked with several people like the brilliant um, Dr. Cindy Bird. She helped us sort of evaluate the collection. Um, I, need, I wanted an outside perspective. And, you know, she helped us identify the strengths of our collection and sort of what were some of the, the weaknesses. And, um, you know, it was a long process. We then decided we wanted to sort of commemorate this whole process by uh, publishing a decoy catalog. It's not an extensive catalog of our collection, but it's a pretty nice sampling, I think, of um, sort of the highlights of our collection. So y'all opened that in 2017. You had two years of it being open, right? And then COVID hit. So how did <laughs> how did y'all... I know. I mean, I know what, I mean, I started a podcast during COVID. So how did you fare COVID and your ways of reaching your audience during that time? Yeah. One of the things that I did was I started my Instagram page. It's called Odd, Odd Ducks VT for Vermont. And it allowed me an opportunity to really drill down and sort of do some research or promote some of the decoys in our collection. I would go, I would go in when, you know, we were only allowed to be like one person on campus in our area and I'd go into the gallery and I'd have the cases open so I could bring out the ducks. And it, so it also afforded me an opportunity to sit down with the decoys and sort of handle them again and sort of scrutinize their construction. And, you know, it sort of also gave me an opportunity to start this next research project that I'm working on which is a program, a research program about um, Tom Schroeder, the great um, Michigan carver. Um, he was this really amazing innovator. And uh, I'm looking forward to, to learning more about him. And if anyone out there who is listening has Tom Schroeder in their collection or and they would like to share some information with me, please reach out. I'm happy to talk. That's cool. Yeah, it does. I will say that was, uh, we weren't closed very long because, you know, we're inside a Bass Pro, so the Bass Pro never closed, mm -hmm. and um, the museum was only closed maybe two months. And but in that time, I did like get to you know I don't have the I mean most of our stuff is on loan, but it was nice to be able to open things up and 
you know, not like you not have that security issue that you normally have. Um, like you don't get to open up collections like we normally. Yeah. Like, like yeah, it's nice. Um, and you get to really like study it and be with it and kind of get to understand things more. And what did you learn in that time? Because I'm, I know I did. Like just having that time to look at your collection and how it was set up. And what did you learn that you're wanting? And going forward, like, what did you want to change in that? Well, it sort of goes back to our reassessment in the twenty before twenty seventeen of the collection, and that was the fact that for a museum located in the Champlain Valley, we have a very um, we don't have a great um, representation of decoys that were made in the Champlain Valley region, and so I really started to think about and research sort of local carvers and started building up sort of a wish list that I hope to be able to you know, check these different carvers off and different species off of this checklist as we are the opportunity to acquire these birds, either through donation or purchase, um, sort of presents itself. Right. Yeah, tell your local story. So is there anything that you want to talk about that we haven't talked about? Yeah, you know, I think one of the things that um, I wanted people to be aware of is that when we went through the renovation process, we only had a small percentage of our decoys out for collectors, historians, and just the general audience to be able to view. And so when we decided to lay out the whole gallery system, because it's an old house that was probably built, I think, in the 1820s, and it's been retrofitted on the inside to be these different little galleries. And so upstairs, what we wanted to do was we wanted to create open storage so that we could put out every decoy that we have in our collection. And that would allow people by species, collectors, dealers, you know, anyone who's interested in decoys to be able to see a broad range of a specific species and provide them access for research purposes. So every decoy that um, we have that is a complete decoy, so it's not missing a head or it's just a, a body or just a head, um, is out on display for our audience to see. And that was a big, um, a big thing for me. I really wanted to provide access to the collection. Yeah, that's amazing. And especially like if you are, you know, newer into collecting, even if you aren't newer into collecting, but being able to see decoys um, and original paint and their structure, like that makes a huge difference in how you'll collect, you know, going forward. And it, you know, and that's huge. So go to Shelburne and look at decoys. <laughs> yeah, please. So how many full body do you have available for people to look I at? I think the exact number is around 1150 something or 63, oh. somewhere around there. So the vast majority, like almost, I think 98% of our entire collection is on view and everything that's not our um, dismembered bodies, you know, that we don't know much about. Yeah, that's amazing. And for non-museum people to know, like uh, our museum is not that way because we don't have a huge collection, but most museums that are large or medium-sized, most of their collections are not on display. So that's fantastic. Yeah. So does that, does your collection range like from every area that there are decoys? Do you touch like most regions? Our collection isn't really encyclopedic. Um, it's very specific to um, the collectors who have the collections of collections that we have. So Joel oh, yeah. Barber's collections are primarily, you know, East Coast decoys. Um, we had a man named Richard Muller give us a collection that was really strong in, say, shorebird decoys. Then we have Ted Mulligan's collection of decoys. And so we're missing things like Illinois 
um, decoys we don't have a great representation of. And the same holds true for West Coast decoys. Mm -hmm. Um, So our strengths, I guess, are really um, East Coast um, birds. Yeah. Carvers. Through Canada? Yeah, into Canada. Yeah, we do have, um, we also, I should say, we have a great um, sampling of sort of the St. Clair Flats area, you know, in Michigan and Canada. So we have, then that was Joel Barber, because at the end of his life, he went out west to Michigan, and he made a connection with all of these uh, collectors and carvers out there. Yeah, that is one thing, you know, when you read his book, that is fantastic like fascinating is how he would go and meet these people and gather like firsthand stories with them. He doesn't give you a lot of it, but you can tell that's what he did. Yeah. And one of the things we have at our museum is before he died, he was planning on writing a second book and he, it was going to be called the decoys of North America. And it was this beautifully illustrated book. It was going to be, um, but he never finished it. He died. Um, of a heart attack uh, in 1950, on January 1st, 1952. And so, you know, we have the remains of that book. And so one of my goals before I die is to um, recreate that book as best we can and get it out into the uh, into the world through publication. Yeah, I was going to say, are you going to do that? Because that would be amazing. And it's more, it's illustrated uh, more so as well, like mm-hmm. in his last. We have sort of a general outline. We have some of the written content that he had, but I've been able to identify um, all of the decoys that he was illustrating because not all of these were from his collection. Um, Okay. So I've been able to track them down. Uh, There's about, I think, 40 of them that we know about. Are they in private collections or all Uh, over? The decoys, yeah. They're all over. Yeah, that's cool. Do you have any shows coming up that you want to talk about besides this one that you just did? No, I don't have any shows that coming up specifically related to decoys. Um, but, you know, my interests are, I'm still interested in the collection. I will never stop researching it. And so I'm hoping that this Tom Schroeder research project will sort of morph into maybe an exhibition or an online exhibition. Yeah, it's so, it's great how much we can do with, we don't do enough with our online stuff and I'm hoping to do that um, just because our audience is so wide, you know, like yeah. really not that many. Yeah, and you know, COVID I think um, forced my museum into um, really thinking through how do we engage people through our website, um, which is www.shelbermuseum.org, by the way. <laughs> Well, I'll make sure we put all that in the show notes anyway. Don't worry. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks, Corey, for coming on the show. It was fun. Well, thank you for having me. I'm willing to come back anytime you want. Yeah. Well, anytime you have anything good, a new exhibit or something, we'll have you on. Thank you so much. Thanks to our special guest, Corey Rogers. Thanks to our producer, Chris. And thanks to you, our listeners, for supporting wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.